Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. How many of you, at some point or another in your life, went to Sunday school? A good number. I mean, it's one of those things which I think sadly is becoming less popular these days. But certainly, I went to Sunday school virtually every week, along with my two older sisters, until they were of an age where they didn't go anymore. I mean, there was, there was, to be fair, one point of mild rebellion in my life. Um, I was four at the time. And uh, for a while I refused to go on a matter of principle. And the principle was an easy one. All the adults and in fact all the other age groups of children had chairs to sit on. But when I was in the beginners group, for some reason we had to sit on a rug on the floor. I mean, it wasn't a picnic, was it? What was that all about? So I for a while just refused to go in there and so I stayed with my parents in the main service and, uh, and got distracted with other activities for a year until I was old enough to go into the next age group up and actually allowed to sit on a chair. Anyway, I think it was probably while I was at Sunday school that I learned a song and uh, I'm, you'll be pleased to know I'm not going to sing it. But I'm sure I'm not the only one who would have learnt this at some point. I think probably most of you would have either heard it or maybe sung it yourself. But it starts with these two lines. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Does anyone else know that one? Did anyone else used to sing that at some point? I'm I'm glad it's not just me. And, um, you know, it's at an early age that that song tends to get sung. But I think it starts to embed some understanding of some truth into our hearts. Because as we look through the Bible, particularly at the Gospels, what we see is time and time again that authors wrote about the love that Jesus had for people. And it made me ask this question. What was it that persuaded the New Testament writers of this love? This love that Jesus had so much that they wanted to write about it so clearly and so passionate. Was it Jesus' words? Was it the way he interacted with people? Was it his performance of miracles and healing? Was it just the way he demonstrated courage through his years of public ministry? What was it that demonstrated this love? Because whatever it was, his love seemed to be surely experienced very profoundly 
by the disciples. And particularly during the final days of Jesus' life, the time that many of us call Holy Week. And this morning, as we continue to look at the questions that Jesus asked people, we're going to look at a passage in Mark 14. This is what it says. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. They all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going on a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and he found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they didn't know how to answer him. And he came the third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This passage says it starts with a hymn. Jesus and his disciples had just celebrated the Passover meal, which traditionally ends with the singing of praises. They're called the Halal, from where we get Hallelujah. But this time, the hymn wasn't just marking the end of a season. Although his disciples probably didn't really realise, it was marking the end of an era. God himself had visited the planet. In all his beauty and with all his love, but his visit was nearing its end. And you know, the more I read the story of the Last Supper in the Gospels, the more poignant it seems to become. I don't know whether you've ever considered what a tender and touching time it must have been. It was good friends sitting together, talking and praying, experiencing the common fellowship of that meal together, sharing memories, sharing hopes and dreams. 
and being together. And then a great deal happened that night because Jesus washed the feet of his disciples as they entered the room. He was urging them to be humble in the way they served one another. And then he even stretched out his hand to his betrayer who was sat at the table there with him and he spoke these remarkable words. This is my body. This is my blood. Never before have we seen Jesus give himself to his disciples in such an intimate and profound way. And then at the end of their time together, Jesus prayed what is perhaps the most remarkable prayer in the Bible. And you can find it, if you want to, in chapter 17 of John's Gospel that gives the account of the same period. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son might glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, but they may also be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, and so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. But the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus knew that he could no longer protect his disciples. And so what he was doing was he was commending them into the hands of God. All in all, it was an extraordinary evening. And then, as it ended, they sang this benediction and walked out into the darkness. Going back to the original passage and continuing at verse 27, what we read is that Jesus told them what was going to happen in the hours ahead. And as they walked, Jesus reminded them of what the prophet Zechariah had said. He wanted them to know that a time was coming soon when he would be destroyed and they would be dispersed in fear and confusion, like a sheep without a shepherd. And Paul's response is typical. Sorry, Peter's response is typical. It's just like Peter. He was ready to draw his sword to save Jesus. Because he wanted to save him from whatever this terrible thing was that was going to happen. And he was saying in effect, the others might be a bunch of weak sheep, but not me. Not me, Lord. We will fight this together. Peter saw the other disciples as sheep ready to scatter. But he saw himself as a shepherd. And he was ready to defend that flock and even Jesus himself. Shepherds in those days were tough guys. We tend to think of them as serene pastoral types. Playing harps, watching fluffy sheep graze in uh, green pastures. But in fact, shepherds spent most of their time tending their animals in harsh surroundings, in the wilderness, sleeping outside and protecting them against predators and other threats. I mean, one of the best descriptions of shepherding that you'll find is actually in 1 Samuel 17, where David is talking to Saul about the fact that he wants to go out and fight this giant called Goliath. He says this, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. 
When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will just be like one of them. Because he has defiled the armies of the living God. That's what it was like to be a shepherd in those days. You had to be prepared to rescue your sheep from the very mouth of their predators. And here we hear Jesus say, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I mean, in Zechariah 13, where that's actually being quoted from, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It sounds in Zechariah as though there is some mysterious sword that will awaken and strike the shepherd. But Jesus is now adding insight to that, showing it's God himself who says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The reason there's no defence for the shepherd is because the one who will destroy him is his own father. The shepherd became the sin bearer for our sake and he had to die. Justice required payment for sin. And the God of heaven was calling for it to be paid. And then in verse 28, Jesus tells them that a time is coming when they will return to Galilee, but they'll find that he's got there before him. And so once again we see this picture of the shepherd going ahead of his sheep. And although what Peter hears is only the words of this coming tragedy that he wants to go and fight off, Jesus is declaring that the end of the story is going to be life, not death. And then we get to verse 32. They arrive at Gethsemane and he says to his disciples, sit down guys, I'm going to go and pray. And moving away from the others, accompanied by Peter, James and John, it says that Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. The message paraphrases it well. It says, he plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. J.B. Phillips in his translation says, he began to be horror stricken and desperately depressed suffering, terrible sorrow and anxiety, he asked these three to keep watch for him. There wasn't any requirement for them to be courageous. He didn't ask them to defend him. He didn't want them to do anything heroic. He just asked them to wait, to stand, to keep vigil with him. And I mean, Peter had just said, I'm going to be a hero for you. And Jesus said, no you won't, but could you just love me enough to keep vigil for me? What I'm going to go through now is so hard, I need someone who cares enough just to be there for me. 
And Jesus moved away and began to pray. And when he came back a a short while later, he found them sleeping. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you stay awake for even an hour? Twice again he goes away to pray. And twice again he returns and finds his friends asleep. And all he had done is ask them to keep a vigil. They'd failed at even this simple assignment. I don't know if you've ever had to keep watch over someone. Someone you care about. Or maybe you've asked someone to do it for you when you're facing tough decisions. Sometimes you don't want sympathy. You don't want others to make the decision for you. You don't even want their advice. You just want them to know that they're there for you. Waiting. Supportive. And ready. And that's what Jesus wanted here. He wanted his friends to stand watch. They must have heard him praying. They must have seen the difficulty he was in. I'm sure they'd never before seen him so burdened, so in need. And yet they fell asleep. In verse 36 we read, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. It's only Mark's gospel that tells us that Jesus addressed his father as daddy. That Aramaic word, Abba, a tender word of trust and closeness. There's formal language to indicate father as someone who's powerful and capable and demanding. But Jesus chooses to use Abba. And it shows him drawing near to the one who could hold him in his arms and make everything okay. Father, you can do anything. You can take this cup from me. Will you? That's the ancient struggle. It's the ancient struggle of people who believe. How can God be all loving and all powerful yet allow me to suffer? Perhaps he doesn't really love me after all. Maybe it is all a sham. And that same struggle is at the heart of the prayer that Jesus prays. Luke 22 tells us that an angel came to strengthen him. But we read nothing of a response from the Father. God the Father had turned his back on the sin bearer. Daddy, you can do anything. Won't you please take this cup from me? And there's no answer. As he ends his prayer, Jesus says, but it's not what I want, but what you want. Obedient to his father, he chooses to endure everything that was necessary so that we might be saved. And just as we consider that, I want to make a couple of points about that choice, the choice Jesus made. The 
first is this. It may well have been the obvious weakness of his disciples, their desperate need for a saviour, that actually strengthened his resolve to go ahead, to go to the cross. He endured the cross because of his love for them. And that's where we start to see the wisdom in that children's song. Jesus loves me. This I know. Because the Bible tells me so. That is the heart of the Bible's message. The Bible tells us of Jesus' great love because the gospel writers saw his great love in them for them that night. And they wrote about it so that others could know the same thing. In their inadequacy, in their failure, Jesus loved them enough to die for them, just as he loves us enough to die for us. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The second point is that we can see here helps us with our view of Jesus' humanity. He wanted desperately at that point to avoid the cross. And it's important to understand that because it's easy to think that Jesus never sinned because he never particularly wanted to. Jesus' struggle here with obedience at Gethsemane helps us to understand better what we read in Hebrews 4, where it says that Jesus is a faithful high priest because he knows everything we're going through. There's no temptation which is unfamiliar to him. He has personally experienced the profound desire to disobey God. Yet he overcame it, he overcame that desire. And that's why he's able to come to our aid when we are tempted. And then, when the struggle was over, when Jesus had wrestled with God and he had chosen to obey, we read those words in verse 41. And I think they're filled with love and sorrow. Are you still sleeping? The hour had come. The betrayer had arrived. There was no hope for these weak disciples. Except from a saviour who could provide new righteousness for them. Because without Christ's sacrifice, they would never be any different. And neither can we. These disciples were eyewitnesses to the great love of Christ. Eventually they would understand so much more that he died for them. And not just for them, but for the whole world. They would understand that the plan was far bigger than they could comprehend. Certainly when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane. They would understand that this one who'd been in the garden with them, was in fact the eternal, divine Son of God. And then they would go on to go on and tell the world of his incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. 
In fact, John would go on and would write that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Someday, he would write these things about the Jesus that he'd followed. But I don't think he knew them that night in the garden. Peter would write in the future his letters about salvation and about the resurrection of Jesus. And perhaps he would realise that this battle at Gethsemane and the battle on the cross that followed was in fact an enormous victory over those terrible forces of wickedness. And that in his resurrection, Jesus would claim his place at the right hand of God. Someday Peter would know these things, but I don't think he had a clue that night. What he and John and the other disciples did know is that Jesus had seen them at their worst, and he loved them anyway. However often they failed him, he would never fail them. And because they personally experienced Jesus' great love, they wrote about it. And we can read their words today. And we can sing that song. Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. And I think the question this morning is a simple one. Can you sing that song? Yes. Jesus loves me. Yes. Jesus loves me. Yes. Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And can you sing it with conviction? Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 